A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Marie Claire and the Thinker Girls present... We need to talk about... We need to talk about... We need to talk about. No, seriously, we actually do. Today's topic, anxiety. A forward from the editor of Marie Claire, Nikki Brigger. Hi, I'm Nikki Brigger. I'm the editor of Marie Claire. When we found out that anxiety is the leading cause of ill health in girls and women in Australia, we were staggered. A shocking one in three women and one in five men will experience this debilitating condition at some stage in their life, and it starts when girls are really young, as young as five. Unfortunately, many people let the symptoms snowball just because they fear discrimination, which is why we were so keen to bring this condition to light. Enjoy our first podcast series. Over to the Thinker Girls. Juanita Phillips is an Australian journalist and news presenter. She's the weeknight presenter of ABC News in Sydney and she recently opened up about her journey with anxiety to Marie Claire magazine for their anxiety edition. Juanita, thank you for your time today. Oh, you're welcome. Um, we, we both read the Marie Claire feature on you and, and we were so excited to chat to you about this because what came across was just this real clarity and this real... Um, you know, lovely but very clear way of expressing something that obviously is it can be very internal um, issue for you. Could you talk to us about how how you feel about sharing? Because we we just off the mic spoke about how not everybody is always comfortable about that. But from what we can already see, you have you ever had a problem with sharing about your anxiety? Not once I got to understand it. I think when I was younger. I was very reticent to talk about it because I thought that maybe I was the only one who was feeling that way. But then when I was in my 30s, I had a bit of counselling and I learnt that I had anxiety and I also learnt, you know, where it came from and I got to understand it a bit. And so over the years, I've got to really know it. It's almost, I wouldn't call it an old friend, but... Mm. um I've got to know my anxiety really well and understand it, where it comes from, what it's triggered by, how to deal with it. And I've even learned to kind of appreciate it in a way because it pops up and tells me that, you know, my life's out of balance. Mm. So no, I've never, never really had an issue since then talking about it because I think it's just so common. Mm. Where or how was the first way your anxiety started to flare up? Even if in high, well, you know now in hindsight that it was anxiety, but maybe at the time you weren't aware that it was anxiety. What was that first kind of experience where you went, oh, what is this? And something's not quite right. Well, I can sort of look back and say that probably it started when I was about 10, I'd say, because I remember my mum taking me around to a number of doctors because I had really bad stomach pains and I couldn't mm. sleep at night. I remember I used to lie awake at night worrying about things, you know, worrying about school or worrying about family mm. stuff. 
And um, so we went around to various doctors and they said, oh, there's nothing wrong with her. And um, I don't even know if they said, oh, maybe it's nerves. I mean, in the old days, they used to call it nerves. Yeah, my mum speaks about that, her yeah. her dad being sent. And this was such an off-the-cuff comment that she said, my dad would be sent off for weeks at a time for his nerves. Yes. And it's not a term that I had heard before or knew had existed within my family. Yeah, like that was in the 70s. So yeah. it was like, oh, yeah, people suffer from nerves. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, I guess that was their word mm-hmm. for anxiety. And then so over the years, kind of at various sort of stressful points in my life, it would flare up again. And um, and then I got to a point in my 30s where I thought, oh, this is just debilitating, you know. It's just mm. um, robbing me of enjoyment of life. And that's when I got some counselling and learnt to understand it. Mm. Didn't mean that it went away. Yeah. But um, just, just meant that I knew what it was and, and how to deal with it. With anxiety, it just sort of snowballs and it just, you can't, you've got to find sort of a way to short circuit it. Otherwise, it just... It just carries you along with it and gets bigger and bigger and it bigger. It feels so real too. Mm. It started off from, uh, oh, I don't know if I should have given that pass back, to all of a sudden, I don't know, it, it can be anything. And then the, the extension of where it kind of went from, I don't know if this is your experience, but feels so real, even though it really wouldn't have been a thought if you didn't think about the past in the first place. Yeah. It's yeah. very, it's a long-winded way of saying it, but it is, it's just a, to paint a clear picture of how, mm how really full on it can go. Yeah, catastrophizing. Yeah. Yeah, and you really don't want to be there at the other end of the catastrophizing, so you need to be able to kind of recognize it in the beginning and go, oh, no, hang on, that's not really rational. And that's a term I think for myself have only really understood this year because I think as women we often are put as overthinkers, as a real part of your personality. Um, As women I think we over over carers or worry too much or there's this real maternal thing that is really heavy heavily linked with being anxious and often those things can then slip through the cracks because it is really normalized in some way and I have always been classified as an overthinker the thinker girls is essentially named <laughs> because of my thinking um, capacity and and at times it's 100% to my detriment was catastrophizing something that fell within your symptoms or things that you experienced? Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the worst periods, one when my kids were really little, and this is when it sort of manifested at work, but yeah, I remember being on the sofa and just uh, I'd something um, would go wrong with my health, nothing major, you know, there'd be some mm-hmm. little niggle. And before I knew it, I'd be thinking, I'd be, I'd be Googling my symptoms and going, oh my God, I'm, the worst I'm, obviously, to do. I, I'm terminal, yeah. you know, like, yeah. and, and just, that's very you know, common, isn't mm-hmm. it? Now yeah. that we're here. Yeah. But especially once you had have kids yeah. because it's like I'm not going to be here for them. Was, oh, it, was that almost like a trigger or an added element? And I think it was just doing too much. Like yeah. I think I think in a really anxiety, a lot of anxiety has a really simple, you know, root and that is simply that we do too much and we just load too much onto ourselves. And yeah. I think that's why women tend to suffer from it mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, these days we're expected to have a career and as well as look after the house, raise children and just having children in itself is like a massive kind of, you know, thing you've got to get your head around. So I think that's one of those key periods and that's why I guess women get postnatal depression mm-hmm. and they, you know, their anxiety flares up because you're dealing with this whole new set of circumstances plus you're meant to just capably carry on, mm-hmm. you know, doing everything that you normally do. My anxiety 
probably began in one big event when I was 28 years old and I had twins who were um, extremely premature, born at 29 weeks um, and all of a sudden, you know, sitting next to me were, you know, two two kilo babies that I all of a sudden had to handle. Um, and yeah, it was just like a, an extreme moment where all of a sudden the expectation on me to be a mum was just sort of like handed to me so quickly. I had just moved schools and the girls, they were lovely, but it's very clicky. And I think I was so used to that small 17 people in a class. There was no drama two clicks, girls being quite mean. And I think I just got, I got socially anxious. I was worried about people liking me. I was worried about making friends. I was worried about being cool. And I just had panic attacks. My earliest memory of experience anxiety was probably in my 20s when I had a bad breakup with a boyfriend, as we all do. For me, it felt a little bit unsure of the world and it was probably the first time that things I've, I've always been a person that you know if you a plus b plus c will equal you know and I just for the first time it was like well I did all of that and it didn't work out so for me it's sort of presented in I guess going back into myself a bit more questioning things a little bit more and feeling a little bit more hesitant Here's Jill Stark, author of Happily Never After. There's um, challenges in the modern age that we didn't have in previous generations. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that, that we live in a, a pretty frantic, kind of crazy busy world where it's really hard to switch off. And I think that that has um, created a few challenges. But it's not, it's not the only the only issue, I think. Um, yeah, we, we, do, we do live in a time that is... We're, we're very on edge, I think, in a way that we perhaps weren't in, a, in calmer days when we weren't constantly plugged into a bunch of devices. A, a bit of the book that I've, from my understanding, that I've read was that a lot of uh, the discovery around what makes a person who they are and how their fight or flight is created is around that first three-year mark mm. when when you're born, and I found this really fascinating. Could you um, could you share with our listeners a little bit about the discovery you had from what life was like in your in your early years and and what impact you think that that could play on someone's anxiety later in life? So you know, ninety percent of the brain's development happens before the age of five. So the way that we interact with the world in those early years is really critical in, in how we um, adapt or don't adapt as the case may be um, uh, you know, in terms of our attachment style and how secure we end up becoming. So for me, I grew up in what was a very loving and sort of middle class, you know, quite comfortable family in, in Scotland and Compared to some of my friends who had who had um, fractured families and a lot of difficulties, I felt like that I couldn't possibly feel. Um, I felt guilty for for um, having these mental health issues because you know, to the outside world, I had this perfect family. And um, when I look back at it, it's not to say that my parents didn't love me, but there was a lot of there was a lot of drama happening in my um, household as a young girl and um, this is what I unpacked in therapy that when I was born um, my well first of all 
before I was born, my, my father suffered a quite serious um, nervous breakdown while mum was pregnant with me. And he was really, really unwell, like to the point of being almost catatonic for a long time. And by, by the time I was born, he was recovering, but he was still not in a great place. And at the same time, my brother, who's three years older than me, um, was very ill pretty much for the first six years of his life. He had meningitis, he had um, a kidney problem, he had issues that put him in and out of hospital. And uh, so for me, as, as a baby, um, my parents were really distracted. Um, and that's not to say they didn't love me and that they didn't do the best they could. Every parent you know, would hope that they would. But um, for me, as a, a child trying to attach to the caregivers around me, I didn't understand that their distraction was not caused by a lack of love, but because they had a sick child and my dad was still recovering from his own issues. So my little brain that was developing and wasn't able, as at that point, we're, pre-con- we're precognitive, we don't understand. We don't have the, the, um, the brain function to, to rationally look at what's going on around us and go, oh, okay, mum's not giving me attention because she's looking after my brother. We start to internalize that and start to blame ourselves. So I think what's interesting is that uh, for me, looking back, I was like, well, I didn't have any what I would describe as genuine trauma, you know, that I wasn't abused or I I didn't go through a car accident or um, experience the death of a parent, all of these things that a lot of people go through who end up with mental health issues that I thought that I had to have experienced something really dramatic for for these, to, to, to explain these mental health issues. And as it turns out, you know, it doesn't have to be something, this deep, dark secret to explain why we behave the way we do. And so that's, that in a way has been really liberating to realize that, that um, there's nothing sinister really underneath it all, but there is a reason. A few times on our podcast channel, I will often make comment about um, blokes being boy men and it seems to play out so much more obvious or even it's just a bit more transparent with men, whereas I think with women we're very much tied within this old storyline of being intense or doing our heads in or being high maintenance or being hysterical. And I think anxiety has somewhere gotten intertwined into that where a lot of girls or women are feeling like that's just a part of being who you are. I'm an overthinker. I do my head in. I mean, speaking to that, do you think that there are a lot of, there are a lot of people that suffer from anxiety that are undiagnosed or aren't getting treated because of that issue that potentially there's, it's just like a suck it up. uh, This is the way your brain works. You need to move on with it and and work with it. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think a lot of women, I think I think both men and women um, struggle with this for different reasons. I think with women, a lot of the time, as you say, we, um, you know, it's, it's that whole kind of patriarchal view of women as being hysterical and you know having your period and being hormonal and being um, mm. led by your emotions rather than your brain. And I and I think that in a way, there's almost a sense of shame about about that on the flip side men um are very much this suck it up and get on with it kind of thing and that's i think that is 
damaging for men to the point of being deadly. And we see that in the, in the suicide rates in young men. That this, this notion of, um, not being able to show emotion, um, to be able to cry, that masculinity is somehow equated with toughness and toughness equals not showing any emotional vulnerability. That's really damaging. I didn't initially tell anyone. I kind of played it off as a, as it was an asthma attack. I didn't want to know that I had anxiety because I think when you're 14, it's almost like a show of, I thought it was a weakness initially and I didn't want it to give air to this that I'm nervous around people. And it wasn't until it got really out of hand when I was in high school, like the year nine, that I was having panic attacks all the time, like once a week after school. And I'd feel sick going to class and, you know, crying just all the time that I finally kind of told my mum, I was like, I'm feeling, I thought it was, you know, I was like, I don't know if I'm feeling depressed or what's happening. I couldn't get out of bed. And I went to a psychiatrist, um, psychologist. I went to a psychologist and that's when I started to kind of get help and be more open about what it actually was, what was going on, because I didn't even really know what I was experiencing. I didn't know the ins and outs of anxiety. The psychologist said, you need to learn how to breathe. So whenever you kind of feel a panic attack coming on, you just take deep breaths and you sit down and you count your breaths and you count in for five seconds and out for five seconds and you just slow everything down and you do this whenever you're feeling, you know, like short of breath and then a panic attack's about to come on. I wondered if you could speak to a little bit, I know within the Marie Claire um, issue where it was such a stunning photo of you, by the way, oh, in the you. water with your yoga mat. I wanted to know, um, you spoke quite briefly in that about um, a few years ago that you did have an anxiety attack or a panic attack while you were on air. Yes. And, yeah. and how? Did, were there other people, was it, it was an internal thing? Did other people realise that that was going on with it, you? Or? It was just the weirdest thing. I didn't actually feel that stressed or anxious like yeah. a lot of my anxiety doesn't manifest as me thinking you know consciously oh, I'm anxious I felt fine and I just went to air and started reading the bulletin and then mm-hmm. I just lost my voice and um and basically what happened afterwards and I tried to struggle on but I literally there was no sound coming out of my voice box wow. and um when and you I, weren't sick or it, like, it was just literally no, you, your voice just, went was the, there and it went it, it went and the wow. larynx just closed up and um and when I, I went and got it checked out afterwards, and apparently when the body is under extreme stress, for example, when you're drowning, your larynx closes wow. as a mechanism to try mm. to for you to survive. And I had uh, what they call a laryngeal spasm where the larynx just goes like that, just went, your okay, body's like, no. I'm not talking anymore. Sorry. Thanks very much. So what happened from that from that uh, point? They had to – well, I couldn't. I literally couldn't speak, so mm. they took the Melbourne bulletin yeah. instead. <laughs> and then I just went out to the newsroom and just took a few minutes and I wasn't sure what had happened either. Um, but anyway, I ended up going back on air and finishing the bulletin. Yeah. Um, and I was able to do that. And it was only later that I realised, oh, okay, that must have been – like a panic attack. Mm. So when you got it checked out, was it was it something that you've been 
fearful of happening again or, you know, there are particular, you know, techniques if it were to kind of flare up or, or present in that way that you'd know kind of how to approach it? Yeah, I think I th- I think it was just a one-off because it yeah. was a super stressful time of my life and that's what made me kind of step back and think, okay, this is crazy. I, and I really just looked at my life and thought, ridiculous. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's you your know. job to speak. Yeah. Also, yeah. <laughs> so how do I kind of wind things back? And so I just entered a, a different phase of my life where I just decided to say no to a mm. lot of things, have a pretty quiet life actually. And just um, I just learned to be very mindful of not taking on more than I can handle. And Protecting I, yourself. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. What, that's it. It is a real issue that we've got because as much as we have this essentially this public campaign of speaking up and being there for each other, there is still this underlying cultural stigma behind people speaking up. How did the workplace respond to to your experience and, and, and have you had experience in either witnessing other people feeling uneasy about it or, or yourself in other workplaces perhaps? Not really. I'm really lucky working at the ABC, which is a very supportive workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never noticed any sort of negative responses to me. And I've had quite a few colleagues that I know have gone through their own ex- mental health experiences, mm-hmm. whether it's depression or anxiety, um, and they've been really well supported. Hasn't been sort of, you know, publicised or spoken about very much, but you just quietly learn that, you know, various of your colleagues have at a certain period of time needed some support or some time off for those kind of issues. So again, I don't, I, I've never ha- luckily mm. had that experience mm. of being in a workplace where, where it's, you know, a stigma. Mm. Mm. It's incredible. What other techniques have you used to be able to kind of, I'm assuming with the yoga mat in the pick, that wasn't just a <laughs> random kind of, no. hey, I'm just on the way to the studio. You never know, these stylists really <laughs> like to up things. Yeah, we yeah. thought we'd do the yoga story, right? You know, could you do the yeah. downward dog? You're like, no stress. Yeah, chuck me one. I'm more of a jogger lady. Yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely not a jogger. <laughs> no, no, actually the, the yoga thing, I, I really feel like that kind of saved my life during another stressful time. That was when I was going through a divorce and becoming a single mum. Yeah. And um, so, again, my stress levels were pretty high and I was feeling I wasn't sleeping at night and I just thought, I I have to do something or I'm going to start drinking an awful lot of red wine. Mm. Um, and then a friend introduced me to Bikram yoga and uh, I just got into that, you know, in a huge way, yeah. like practicing five or six times a week. Yeah, wow. Which is totally over the top yeah. and I would never actually recommend it. It was yeah. good for, for just totally getting rid of it actually just getting away from the Mm. thoughts in my head. That was really what I was looking for, I think. So that helped me over a sort of a two to three year period. And then Mm. since then, I've I've just gradually sort of wound back on it and I do a different type type of yoga and um, it's much more relaxed. And mm. it's funny. I've got I've had this conver- the same conversation with two or three people I reckon over the last few months that have said, "Oh, you know, I'm an overthinker. I can't sleep at night." I'm like, "You should try to do yoga." And they're like, "No way. That's the worst thing I could do. I don't want to be alone with my thoughts." So it's funny how it's like. Mm. And I'm like, "You're the exact type of person that needs to do it. Yeah, to get yeah. more of a um a familiarity around being in your head. At yes. first, was that challenging for you? Ah, uh, not really. I think I was so desperate for yeah. it, and because big. From that style of yoga is really hard. So all you can think about is the pain. There's actually. no time. <laughs> no. I was just concentrating yeah. on not fainting. Yeah, yeah. You do. Yeah. Or you're feeling so hot. You just think, oh god, it's so unpleasant. Oh, these people smell. Oh, look at all that sweat dripping. You you are distracted. And I think with mm. anxiety or depression or anything like that, that's why exercise is so good. Especially if you're doing something that is 
particularly challenging. So you just, you don't have space in your head to be, Mm. you know, churning over the same old stuff. Mm. And so just if anyone is listening and we are, you know, there's plenty of people that, that I think are hearing about anxiety, hearing about mental illness, but are still sitting there wondering, is mine that severe? What was the first step you took when you had to find a therapist or you took a first step to really navigate and explore in your internal, like you started to explore within? I think, yeah, so that would have been in my early 30s, I think. Um, and I'm not sure how I tracked down a therapist, but obviously just asked around and I didn't really know why. I just thought, something's wrong here and I'd like to kind of figure out what's going on. And that was a really valuable first step. And um, and since then I've had a couple of – I've gone back a couple of times mm. to various counsellors just to talk over things that have been going on in my life. And that, again, just reminds me that, um, you know, that there are certain triggers in life and there are certain stressful situations. So if you're feeling anxiety – it's probably just a completely normal reaction to, you know, an extreme situation. And understanding that is is really mm, helpful. Mm, mm. And if there is any other advice for anybody thinking about approaching this or something that I suppose you would have told yourself, what, what would that be? What would it be? I, th- I think really in terms of young women in particular, I'd say, and I know it might fall on deaf ears, um, just try not to take on too much mm. and try not to have such high expectations of yourself. Mm. Um, you know, I, I see so many young women and they're incredible powerhouses and they're out there, they're studying, they're working, they've got a relationship or they're looking for one, they're thinking about having a family. And I'd just say, you know, take it really easy, be, be easy on yourself because you can sort of handle it in your 20s, I reckon, mm. but you just get to a point where it overwhelms you mm. and then you then you collapse in a heap. So mm. it's mm. pretty it's pretty celebrated though that can do it all, you're killing it kind yeah. of vibe, especially for women these days. Yeah. Until you can't. Yeah. yeah until and you I can't. think and I think some it's hard because I think age and all that you get to a point where something does jam you back and it is interesting that it either takes that point or some form of slowdown before then. Mm-hmm. But I think we still are at a point where it's taking that real health issue to mm-hmm. come on before anyone's really learning the lesson. Yeah, because you don't want to get to that point because it, it you risk sort of losing all of the stuff <laughs> that you've worked really hard for, um, you know, your career and your friends and your social life and all this great stuff going on. If you if you get to the point of being really unwell, yeah. then you, yeah. you risk losing that. Yeah, mm. it's true. Mm. Winita Phillips, it has been a pleasure to talk. Thanks for you're in between bulletins and doing bits <laughs> and pieces and you're going on holiday tomorrow, so we really appreciate your time. If you do want to follow Winita, you can find her on Twitter, Winita underscore Phillips. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure, girls. Thank you very much, so much for having me. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I have a perfectionistic personality, so I tend to really accentuate that perfectionistic side of myself. So now when I have anxiety, I tend to um, try and by feeling out of control, I try to really regain control. So what I find I do is anything from at home, everything in the house having to be perfect to the point where my husband will know if my anxiety's up because a couple of weeks ago he found me repainting a skirting board that had three scuff marks on it. <laughs> I've learnt that sometimes you've got to just take your hands off the wheel and that's been a big learning for me. So I um, saw somebody about it and they spoke to me about, well, what would happen if you took your hands off the wheel? Do you really think it would all crash? Have you ever tried it or is it sort of what's the idea of what's the worst thing that can happen in this situation if you were to take your hands off the wheel? It's funny because for a really long time when I would have blow-ups with partners or, or, or different people, I thought I was an angry person. But yet my personality really didn't, didn't match with that. I'm quite kind and, and, and quite calm and incredibly spiritual and can be very, very introverted at times. And once I figured out that my panic plays out through anger at times, it really opened up my mind to the possibilities that anxiety can play up and show you. And your book really spoke to me in that, in that it opened up that potentially there is always going to be trauma from really big, big events and really awful experiences like being raped or being attacked. But there are also ways that you are able to feel unsafe and really, I guess, um, uneasy as a kid that can essentially lead you to feel some really insane anxiety. I've written the book that I wanted to read when I was in a really tough place because all I could all I could see on the shelves were these very simplistic kind of didactic kind of you buy this book and here's five steps to happiness and that's just that's just not realistic and it's and it's not helpful and I think I got into a lot of trouble and I think our culture gets into a lot of trouble in believing there's a quick fix, whether it's a pill or, as you say, a binging on Netflix or buying stuff we don't need or, you know, and all of these things I still do. <laughs> but I don't expect that to, to cure me, you know, and I don't expect it to it, – It's it, a lot of the time these quick fixes are a numbing agent. They're not the answer. And, you know, the, the answer is – there is no answer, which is there is no easy answer, and it is a lifelong journey. And, and accepting that, and realizing that, as you say, it's almost sometimes an hour by hour for me, sometimes minute by minute, depending on how tough the day is. Is mm. that's not, and I think a lot of the time, particularly for women as well, we'll we'll find ourselves going, "Oh, I'm having the same emotional issue again. What is wrong with me? Why is this happening to me again? I thought I'd got past this." It's like give yourself a break. When you think about it, the way that these habits are formed, you know, it's taken years, decades to form these habits. You're not going to just change that overnight. And also, my psychologist always says to me, don't compare yourself to where you were, um, you know, six 
days ago or six months ago like compare yourself to six years ago and and like look at it as a long-term kind of progress like that it is gradual but that's how change happens it doesn't happen in like a puff of smoke overnight no no and you know it's it is cliche there's so many things that you throw out of all the good things that you get come from work you know <laughs> like it's then this isn't any different um you work hard for your jobs or you work hard for your you know a lot of the time had to have a baby or you work hard for that house that you save for yet when it comes to ourselves we have this expectation that everything's just supposed to kind of work out and if not it's but even then i mean like we do st- we, we still like we often plan for the wedding, not the marriage, the birth, not the baby, you know, buying the house, not servicing the mortgage. Like, so there's still that sort of end point. If we'll buy it, we'll get this and everything will be perfect. And I think like there's so much a tendency, and this is something that I'm, I still work on, is when something goes wrong to say, oh, I'm a failure or um, I can't believe this happened. And you should ignore all the progress that you've made. You ignore all the great things that you have done and you focus on that one small misstep or the one step backwards. Like that's that's why I keep a gratitude journal every night because otherwise if I looked at my other journal, which is just me outpouring everything, which is helpful, like just getting everything out of my head. If I was to read that back, it would look like my life was one big long purgatory of abject misery and it's not. Um, so the gratitude journal allows me to, to record my small wins and go, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, I did this and mm. I did that and and like not just focus on what hasn't gone right. Um and and we do that so often that we look at this this small step backwards is evidence of my complete failure as a human. <laughs> and hmm. you know, it's it's so toxic to us. We've just gotta try so hard to treat yourself the way you would a friend. Like you wouldn't say to a friend who's had you know, too many drinks on a night out, like, oh, God, you know, you're such a loser. Why did you do that? Like, you said you weren't going to do that again. You did. Like, you you would treat them with compassion and support and be gentle. And kind of, yeah, and zoom out a little. It's 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 a hard thing to do, but if you can stick it on as many post-it notes and put it around your house, it helps. <laughs> At the time, I don't think I really did manage it very well. I mean, I had my my husband and my mum-in-laws, which helped. But um, I think as I as I got better at managing it was because I started to like set myself these little goals along the way. So in the morning, it was about getting up and getting dressed and actually getting out for a walk. That was my first thing. And the walking was amazing. So even if it was half an hour, uh, but the getting up process, it gets you into a bit of a routine for yourself. You know, you get up, you have a shower, you get yourself dressed, and then you say, I'm going to walk half an hour to the shops and back, get myself a coffee. Like that changes your whole day compared to sitting in your pajamas, trapped in a house with two babies not knowing what the hell you're doing, um, I think that was the biggest um, step forward in terms of managing it. I really drew on supportive friends. I went and also saw someone professionally and I did some counselling treatments. They put me on a really mild antidepressant, which I don't know if I necessarily needed, but I wonder if psychologically for me at the time that was good. Um, and then just started really trying to exercise, focus, be positive. After having two kids, I feel like I know my body quite well. And so what I do is I take myself off into the bedroom or the bathroom 
and I do some deep breathing and I have to try and recognize that the nausea isn't actually my body being sick, it's my mind. So I have to try and convince myself that I'm not going to throw up. I'm totally fine. It's not an illness. I'm just feeling anxious. Wow, I have learnt a lot from that episode. Yeah, learnt a lot, but also um, did you feel triggered by that at all, like listening back or doing some of the bits and pieces that we that we did for that episode? Was like talking about anxiety, is that a trigger for anxiety? 100%. I mentioned to Jill after we recorded uh, her part of that podcast that it was really triggering her book and so I've had to read it in sections. I think it is exhausting when there are people that are able to uh, describe really core feelings that you have as an anxious person that you feel at the time you're the only person in the world that could possibly mm, be feeling mm. this. So when you hear someone saying that, not only is it hard to hear because it was obviously a, a challenging part of your day or your life, but then also it's so internal that you you feel almost exposed or there's something that it touches in you from somewhere else because you think that no one's ever going to get it. Well, that's why I wanted to ask you because I, I figured that that may be your answer, just sitting across from you doing some of the chats that we have for this particular episode. And I think it's really important to point out that listening to this, if you suffer from anxiety or feelings of anxiety, um, that it's not going to feel that nice to start work on it, you know, like you don't get to the other side and, you know, even stay someone that speaks about this on the reg, you don't find it easy. So I just wanted to make make that really kind of known that if you're feeling a bit flat or raw after this, that's also completely normal because it's going to be hard to start working on it, right? That's right. Lifeline is the number 13, 11, 14 as a beginning point. They can give you some other contacts if you are looking to expand your mental health plan to look into uh, ways that you might be able to tackle some of your issues. Um, and there's also a suicide callback service on 1300-659-467 if you you are feeling quite triggered or not yourself today. This has been a co-production between the Thinker Girls and Marie Claire. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.